welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast, where we investigate breakthrough innovations in mental illness and dissect the brilliant minds behind psychedelic research, as well as psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and other leaders in the field of medicine and mental health from all over the world. I'm Tommy Moore. I am the host of Mind Medicine Australia, a charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness by expanding treatment options that are available to medical practitioners and their patients. We are supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia by providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies, as well as supporting clinical research. If you wish to support our endeavours, you can join local chapter groups, you can share this podcast to your friends or on social media, you can also leave a five-star review if you think this deserves a five-star review and provide comments or questions to the podcast. That really helps this information get out there to the people that are looking for it. And of course, you can donate directly at mindmedicineaustralia.org. Check out the show notes for all the links. And thank you for all your support and interest in this emerging space. Let's get to it. In this episode, I sit down with David Yaden. He is a postdoctoral research fellow at Johns Hopkins Medicine, working in the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. His research focuses in on the psychology, cognitive neuroscience, and psychopharmacology of spiritual, self-transcendent, and positively transformative experience triggered by psychedelic substances and through other means as well. Specifically, he's interested in understanding how these experiences can result in long-term changes to well-being and how they temporarily alter fundamental faculties of consciousness, such as the sense of time, space, and self. He's the editor of Rituals and Practices in World Religions, cross-cultural scholarship to inform research and clinical contexts. He is currently writing a book called The Varieties of Spiritual Experiences, a 21st century update for Oxford University Press. His scientific and scholarly work has been covered by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and NPR. So a lot of his research topics surround psychopharmacology, psychedelics, neuroscience, positive psychology, as well as the psychology of religion and spirituality. In this episode in particular, we chat about self-transcendent experiences and in particular one self-transcendent experience that he had that that led him to have such vast interest in this space and led to all of his research. We chat about attempting to understand the brain and mind in these experiences and leveraging neuroimaging to describe self-transcendence, but also caution in using neuroimaging to define the psychedelic experience. We talk about the idea of prospection and being pulled into the future. We also chat about selflessness and the feelings of connection. So a lot of psychedelic experiences describe as this loss of self or egolessness. And he tends to sway towards not necessarily being selflessness, but more swaying towards feelings of connection. And of course, this self, which is always projecting this this feeling to, I guess, our self, that it's separate from nature. So I guess selflessness and feelings of connection uh, one and of the same, but he describes the psychedelic experiences as more so about feeling connected. We get into the conversation of time, space, and self, and we chat about psychedelic research finally entering somewhat of a maturity and really starting to understand and hone in on what this context and environment the psychedelics can be used for. And also the real dire need to arm psychiatrists with psilocybin. Can get a little philosophical at times. David is a researcher. He's not involved as much in the clinical side of things. So this conversation is really swayed towards the psychedelic experience and understanding self-transcendence. For those that have been tuning into a lot of these episodes, know that I am quite philosophical and I love exploring spirituality and religion and 
how that relates to our experience. Hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. See you on the other side. David, honestly, it, it's an honor to, to be able to chat with you. Your, your work is incredible and inspiring. And I mean, people don't just fall into studying spiritual experiences from perspective of psychology and neuroscience by chance, or at least I don't think so. So how did your interest first spark in this space? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to be chatting with you today. Yeah, so my my interest in this topic, psychedelics, definitely came through a roundabout kind of way. Uh, it started with an experience that had nothing to do with drugs whatsoever. It was an experience that happened to me lying in my dorm room bed uh, that was that was triggered, as far as I can tell, pretty spontaneously. Um, but it was an experience uh, that I would describe as an intensely altered state of consciousness, maybe a self-transcendent experience, uh, maybe a spiritual experience, maybe a mystical experience, maybe a peak experience. There's lots of names uh, that people throw around. Uh, but nonetheless, the experience was transformative in a very positive way for me. Uh, almost immediately, there was a profound positive effect and I would say most of all, I was just left wondering what the fuck just happened to me. <laughs> and that question drove me for a number of years and continues to drive me even still. I don't think we really have a very good understanding uh, from the vantage of psychology and neuroscience uh, about what's going on with these kinds of experiences. But I think there's a, a special connection to psychedelics uh, and so that's why I've found myself uh, now as a psychopharmacologist working on uh, psychedelic substances uh, from a variety of perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can certainly vouch to the, the, the difficulty or, or limitations of language when trying to describe such an experience. And I'm sure we're going to get into the, the language of ineffability and awe, which is obviously a lot of the work that, that you've been doing. So a spiritual experience. This this isn't necessarily a new thing. And as science is progressing, we're actually beginning to understand mechanism of action. A, a lot of religions and mystics or anyone in the, in the spiritual space are saying, like, we already knew this. But to understand mechanisms and to learn at the level of the brain and, and the level of the mind as to what's happening is a very, very exciting space. And to even almost mold particular experiences and then treat that with with mental illness is really, really exciting. So how do you describe what you do? <laughs> well, that's a that's a good question. And and I agree that we still don't know very much about mechanism in terms of a, a well articulated scientific perspective. And I agree that people have been talking about these experiences uh, for for millennia. Uh, in, in religious or spiritual or indigenous uh, contexts. I really highly recommend the book by William James called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh, this was a book, you know, I read a lot after my own experience, and this was the book that helped me the most by far. I mean, it was just incredibly illuminating. It's also written in a very accessible style. Uh, it, it, it feels very modern. It's, I consider it a page turner. Uh, and, you know, William James, philosopher, you know, among the founders of scientific psychology, he wrote a book where he basically collected up dozens or, or more, more like hundreds of accounts of people describing experiences just like mine. And he said, the subtitle of the book is A Study in Human Nature. And so he said, these, these experiences are part of human nature. Uh, and so any thoroughgoing science of, of the mind needs to be able to understand these experiences because they're actually uh, much more prevalent than we imagine them to be. He offered some, I think, prescient uh, possibilities for psychological uh, and even some physiological mechanisms. They were pretty basic, uh, but you know now we have decades of psychological and neuroscientific work on this topic. And so his dream 
of there being <clears throat> a science of these kinds of experiences is coming to fruition. And so I guess I see myself in that lineage. I see myself as someone who is attempting to understand and to some extent, uh, to whatever that, to whatever extent that's possible to, to help explain what's going on in, in the brain, uh, in the mind during these experiences. So that, that's how I see my role. And that spans several disciplines. So it's very interesting. I get to learn about not only psychology and neuroscience and psychopharmacology, but also things like philosophy. Um, because I think all of these things, uh, all of these disciplines give us an important perspective on these experiences, uh, as well as in the special case of psychedelics. William James did experiment with psychoactive substances. He apparently rent, used to rent out a theater, and he and his friends would take nitrous oxide and try to give monologues uh, on the stage <laughs> and, you know, try to, in a fun kind of way, try to understand what the effect of this psychoactive substance is. And uh, William James said that he, the only way that he could understand the writings of Hegel was on nitrous oxide. Uh, and he would, he would write in his journal the kinds of thoughts that occurred to him uh, while he was under the influence of nitrous oxide, uh, things about opposites melting into unity, for example. Uh, he, he was also given mescaline by a friend of his, but he either, it's unknown, I think, historically, whether he deliberately did not take the dose or whether he tried to take it and it, it for whatever reason, was not active, or maybe the dose was not enough. He said it, it just gave him a headache in one letter. Uh, I, th I think, though, had William James uh, taken that a full dose of, of mescaline, we may have um, advanced the field of, of psychedelic research, you know, it may have started much earlier than it did. So anyway, I see myself as a, as a scientist working in the lineage of, of William James, trying to understand these extraordinary experiences and currently focused on uh, psychedelic experiences in particular, uh, as well as their treatment potential. Yeah, certainly. And yeah, just, just touching on, I guess, the, the progressions that we're making within the technology of, of understanding mechanisms of action is limited because it's, it's limited to, to what we can see in, in a lot of ways or what we can observe. And much of spiritual experiences or describing such experiences is it's hard to say that, you know, it's happening at the level of the brain. Obviously there's, there's alterations in where the blood is going and the different neural pathways. But I think a good place to start with this is actually maybe give a, a well-rounded uh, definition or explanation of the psychopharmacology of, of psychedelics, especially with those who are somewhat unfamiliar with their, with their power. We'll no doubt branch into non-drug induced altered states of consciousness, but considering most of the psychiatric and clinical trials I've come across are involving psilocybin. So do you care to explain the metabolism and possibly the most notable neurophysiological changes that happen? Yeah, so I think with these experiences um, and with psychedelics, you, you, you need so many layers of analysis, levels of analysis uh, and, and disciplines. And so what's so valuable about psychedelics from a scientific perspective, not thinking clinically, uh, just thinking scientifically now, is it's very difficult to have a laboratory model of say, call it a spiritual or self-transcendent experience, um, which we'll say loosely is like a transient um, altered state of consciousness involving feelings of self-loss and connectedness. Let, uh, we'll just go with that for, for the moment. Um, it's very difficult to do this under controlled laboratory settings. And, and I should know, I've, I've tried and failed a number of times. Uh, so I've, I've done some research with non-invasive brain stimulation, specifically uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a device that looks like a hair, a hair dryer uh, connected to like a mini fridge. <laughs> And what this device does is it passes magnetic pulses, uh, which, which go through the skull 
into the cortex or the outer layer of your brain and they're very targeted and these pulses are able to to increase activity or decrease activity in a particular patch of cortex a particular spot in your brain and so i thought maybe uh, if you could leverage the neuroimaging research of what happens during a, 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 a spiritual or self-transcendent experience and then basically turn off that particular region using the non-invasive brain stimulation and that that would result in this self-transcendent experience. That didn't work. Uh, I actually still need to publish that, that null result. Uh, we've tried other things like inducing awe in the laboratory um, using virtual reality, for example. Um, we've looked at different practices like meditation and it's basically just very difficult to, to call on one of these experiences on demand. And that's what's so interesting about psychedelics is they very, very reliably in the majority of participants in studies, say at, say at Johns Hopkins, uh, are able, they report these deeply meaningful self-transcendent uh, or mystical type experiences uh, under laboratory conditions. Now, I think it's an open question as to whether the exact same neurobiological mechanisms are involved in, say, a spontaneous self-transcendent experience versus a psychedelic uh, experience that results in similar kinds of subjective experience as people report from you know, surveys that they take and descriptions that they provide. So, so it, it, it seems to be the case that the subjective experience is often very similar across various triggers, but there's an open question as to whether the exact same neurobiological process is leading up to those experiences. Uh, so in with classic psychedelics like psilocybin, for example, uh, there's some amazing research showing some of the pharmacology uh, and the, the interactions with the brain. Um, sometimes these particular psychedelics are called serotonergic psychedelics because they appear to act through the serotonin pathway. Uh, they're, they're called partial 5-HT2A agonists in particular, which is um, a, kind of like a mimicking a serotonin effect. You could, you could think of it in that, that way for the most part, <laughs> it gets complicated. And then in terms of the effects on uh, the brain, those are also, I still think, in very, very preliminary phases of understanding. And uh, I could get into some circuit models of, of what's happening in the brain. Um, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to, to people who specialize in, in that particular level of analysis. Um, but I think that that work is very preliminary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Once you kind of find out that uh, serotonergic receptors are being activated, it's very quick to just jump on that that's the, the be all and end all. But we're obviously very early on in the research and we are very much fine tuning how we can provide the optimal context for such experiences to to self-transcend and, and transform individuals and improve mental health. So how would you define self-transcendence? So I define self-transcendent experience as a transient mental state involving feelings of self-loss and or connectedness. Um, and that, that's pretty broad and it's intentionally broad. And the reason why it's broad is because we want to use it as an umbrella term uh, to, to capture a number of different really common psychological experiences uh, that psychologists measure quite frequently. And I think that these experiences can be captured along a continuum uh, where you have pretty low intensity versions of a self-transcendent experience, which um, it might be flow, like when you feel absorbed in a task and your sense of time and, and self and thoughts kind of disappear for a little while. Um, mindfulness, uh, where you're watching your, your thoughts pass by from more of an observer kind of position, uh, as well as in, intense positive emotions like love, uh, as well as awe. 
And on the further side of this continuum, you have peak or mystical type experiences. And in these cases, uh, time and space can go away or seem to entirely, and you feel a sense of complete, almost uh, oneness with all things. Uh, and but but these mental states, you know, there are a lot of differences between them, but they seem to share this similarity of involving uh, feelings of connectedness and uh, at least one sense of the self seeming to to disappear uh, during during these moments. But they differ in a number of ways, and um, but at least along these dimensions, they appear to lie along a continuum of intensity. And so I think why this term is useful is it links these kind of strange to some sounding experiences like mystical type experience with these much more common uh, psychological constructs that we talk about much more frequently. Although there, there is an open question as to how, how rare uh, these intense experiences really are. Uh, there are a number of large-scale polling companies like Gallup or the General Social Survey that ask people, have you ever had a life-changing uh, mystical experience, uh, for example, or spiritual experience? And it you know, looks like anywhere between 20 and 40% of the population will agree with uh, these questions uh, in any, you know, the wording will change uh, from year to year. Uh, but that's a surprisingly high proportion of the population, uh, you know, probably 20 to 40% of our listeners will have had one of these kinds of experiences. And there's not a whole lot of work uh, of, of ways to understand these experiences. So that's, that's part of the mission of my research is to, to say, look, you're not alone. Lots of other people have had these experiences. Here's, here's one way of understanding at least part of them. On the other hand, there may be listeners who are saying, what the hell are you talking about? Um, you know, I've never had one of those experiences. And for, for those people, I think talking about things like awe is, is very helpful. You know, this is kind of like the every person's spiritual or mystical experience. You know, if you've ever, if you've ever watched a sunset or, or seen an absolutely spectacular scene or performance that took your breath away, then, then you have at least a taste of what these kinds of experiences are like, I think. Yeah, certainly. And is there any common ground within the, the experiences described, particularly with, with the non-drug-induced experiences? Is there commonalities between such experiences, perhaps the environment or, or the situation that they're in, or do they seem to be a bit more random? Oh, so are there any similarities between the triggers of non-drug experiences? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Um, I'm I'm publishing a paper now, which we list all of these different triggers uh, for intense self-transcendent experiences, and it's so difficult to find a commonality between them. Um, I mean, you have you have things like grief, for example, um, as well as solitude in nature, as well as meditation or prayer. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, psychedelic drugs are up there as well. Um, you have transitional periods in life. Um, you know, so what's the commonality between all of these things? I would, love, I would love to know the answer to that. I'm still working on that myself. I'd love to hear ideas if people have ideas. Um, it's a difficult one, uh, absolutely. And then there's this very difficult problem uh, scientifically and, and philosophically to some extent is, you know, are these experiences that are triggered by very different things and that appear to be similar subjectively, um, you know, do they have the same neurobiological underpinnings? Are they in fact uh, subjectively similar or are we kind of forcing a mold on these experiences that are actually quite different. Um, and so that gets into very deep questions. But one illustration of this that I really like is uh, Houston Smith, when he would teach uh, classes at Princeton, he would put up on the, on the board one quote that's from William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, a spontaneous experience, it's spontaneous mystical experience. Um, on one, on one end of the, the board. And on the other, he would 
write a, a quote from someone describing their psychedelic experience. And he would have the class try to guess which one was caused by a psychedelic. And he said they never could. It was always just chance. Uh, so there seems like um, there's, there's some real similarities across these various triggers. And so sorting that out is it's a really fascinating uh, question, I think. Makes me think about, I guess, the, the neurobiological mechanisms of psychedelic or, or classical psychedelics. And what comes to mind is obviously the modulation of the default mode network and a lot of that, that self-narrative. And when it's, I guess, a self-transcendence, in a way, it's like a, a dissolving of the self. And I tend to think that this the default mode network is kind of the, the sense of self, or as far as we can say that in, in terms of neuroimaging. And I know there has been quite a few few papers looking at the similarities between long-term meditators and, and that of the psychedelic state. So perhaps there is some degree that there is potential for, for long-term change in terms of brain remolding or or loss of self in, in a long-term context, perhaps. I guess that, that begs the question, are these psychedelic states accessible without the use of psychedelics? I know in terms of functional connectivity, more brain networks are connected to each other, not necessarily the number of connections, but regions of the brain are more connected to each other. Is that possibly accessible without the use of, of psychedelics? Well, I mean, like I said, there's compelling connections across subjective self-report of experiences triggered by very different uh, stimuli. Uh, so it, it seems as though that that is certainly the case. In terms of the the neurobiology, you know, as I said, psychedelics in these experiences in general require a number of different levels of analysis. And the neuroimaging level of analysis, I think, is a very important one and and very useful, and of course, uh, should be investigated. But I think it's worth not being too quick to uh, describe the effects purely in terms of neuroimaging findings. I think the danger there, something called reverse inference, is when you say, well, this thing, say the default mode network, seems to change under psychedelics, and, and this default mode network, say, uh, usually does this sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, that must explain the mechanism of, of psychedelics. And, and I think the reality is what's going on in, in the brain, the body is much more complicated uh, than we can look at. And it's nice to have these reliable findings if, if they end up being reliable <laughs> and if they, if they do replicate. Um, but I would be careful about equating the default mode network with the sense of self uh, and, and, being too quick to use that as as a as an explanation or even as a characterization, I think it's an interesting finding uh, for sure. But um, I would say basically it's just this uh, caution that I frequently um, try to caution myself not to be too quick to characterize or attempt to explain the psychedelic uh, experience in terms of neuroimaging findings. Uh, because that can be a dangerous move to to think only in those terms, because I think those findings will actually uh, change and, and develop over time. And something like um, feeling as if the sense of self diminishes, I think will involve uh, a huge number of very complicated and nuanced uh, neurobiological changes that that won't be captured by something as sort of brute as a, as a neuroimaging, um, as an image from a, from functional neuroimaging. Yeah, certainly. I, I definitely agree with that. And certainly myself and, and many others can get caught up in what we do know about, about such substances. But I mean, what we don't know far exceeds what we do know, um, especially in a scientific setting. So how do these changes in, in or these self-transcended experiences evoke long-term change is is there ways that such experiences can be molded and, and improve mental health in in certain ways 
I think that's the big question. Yeah, you know, sometimes I, I characterize my research in general as, as how brief experiences can result in long-term impact, especially in the, the positive direction. So, you know, when I, for example, I recently gave grand rounds on uh, psilocybin and one of the psychiatrists asked, what is the, the half-life of, of psilocybin? You know, I'm presenting findings where a six-hour experience is resulting in an impact, you know, weeks or months later. <laughs> and so you'd think maybe, maybe there's um, some kind of long-term lasting pharmacological effect, but but really the, the pharmacological half-life is in the order of hours. And so the question is, how, how is this experience impacting people weeks and months later? And, you know, there, there again, these levels of analysis, you know, are we, are we looking at the level of the neuron? Are we, are we looking at brain networks? Um, are we thinking in terms of cognitive shifts? Uh, for example, uh, ways in, in which we change our uh, understanding and interpretation of ourselves in the world. So it seems like, at least to me, it seems like in order to get these full and enduring therapeutic effects from a, from a brief experience that lasts weeks or months, it, I, I think you'll have to look at features of the subjective experience and resulting cognitive changes as a result, in order to perpetuate those positive effects over time. And so, you know, it, it might be that we'll, we'll look at um, really classic understandings of cognitive psychology, like the cognitive triad, for example. Um, the cognitive triad is a, is a concept by uh, Aaron Beck, who founded cognitive behavioral therapy. And the, the cognitive triad is beliefs about yourself, beliefs about your future, and beliefs about the world. So they're very basic beliefs that are, that are highly valenced, you know, uh, positive or negative. And it looks like uh, there's something about psychedelic experiences and even self-transcendent experiences generally, uh, where there's this, this automatic shift that's occurring, uh, where people are um, seeing themselves uh, in, a, in not so negative a light, you know, they're seeing new, new possibilities open into the future, and they're seeing the world as, as a more interesting and, and positive place. Uh, and there's some really exciting lines of research uh, continuing aspects of the cognitive triad into, into more and more nuanced kinds of um, measures psychologically. Uh, so for example, changes in beliefs about the self. Uh, there's, there's measures from ACT therapy that have to do with cognitive uh, flexibility, for example, uh, and self-efficacy. Uh, in terms of beliefs about the future, uh, there's measures of what's called prospection or your ability to see uh, pathways for yourself leading into the future. And then in terms of beliefs about the world, uh, there's a construct called primal world beliefs. Uh, Jared Clifton is a psychologist working on this, um, where it looks like, you know, you see the world as a pretty uh, good place and a pretty interesting place after one of these experiences. Uh, so I'm very, very interested in applying this kind of cognitive uh, framework in order to try to understand how it is that an experience that just lasts a few hours is having a positive impact weeks or months later. These experiences, whilst they provide this this awe and sense of oneness and, and connectedness, it's I guess what you do with that experience after it is really what the long-term change is is referring to. You can have such profound experiences, but if you don't necessarily make sense of it or, or do anything about it, you can't necessarily expect um, that long-term well-being to be to be consistent. And you mentioned that word prospection, and it, and it makes me think of I think it. I think it's a, a book that you're, that you're working on, Being Cold, um, in, in terms of getting pulled into a, a particular direction. It kind of ties in with a lot of religious beliefs in terms of fate or, or even free will in, in a lot of ways. And I'd be interested to, to see what your philosophy is in terms of what our position 
is as as humans being pulled into the future and whether there is an inevitability about that or so what are your thoughts there yeah well you you froze a little bit but i i caught some words and so i think i think i heard you ask about um the book that i edited being called and and how that relates to religions and what my own uh, beliefs are is that did i get that mostly right correct yes okay yeah so this book being called i it was i think it came out in 2015 i i was an editor and what we tried to do is to get people to describe uh meaningful experiences that led them to their current life path and we it was mostly psychologists and neuroscientists who who we asked to describe how their research can shed light on this experience. But we also asked uh, some theologians to describe, um, you know, what does religion have to say about these these kinds of experiences? Um, and and I myself am very interested in all of the interesting psychology in religious and spiritual traditions. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of wisdom there uh, to, to learn from. And so I think it's a, it's a great kind of untapped source uh, of, of interesting insights uh, and as well as practices and rituals and descriptions of certain kinds of experiences uh, that I that I find very important to draw from, uh, you know, this is yet another level of analysis, the the scholarly level uh, to draw from. So I find myself in the role as kind of a student, uh, you know, learning from scholars of religion and thinking about what the psychological implications might be. And so in this in this particular book, uh, you know, we 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 tried to get people to. Ex describe their own experiences, their personal experiences, and to then interpret them in terms of their own psychological or or neuroscientific or theological uh, framing. And so, for me, I I see a lot of uh, value in in exploring these traditions. Uh, although I'm an I'm an agnostic myself, uh, and so you know I'm not. And, and in my in my scientific and scholarly work, I, I largely set aside the questions uh, that are, you know, these kind of theological or or metaphysical philosophical questions about, um, you know, what's true with a capital T having to do um, with something, say, supernatural. I basically just set set that aside and address the kinds of questions that are addressable using the kinds of methods that I know. Yeah, certainly. I feel like so many religions and, and spiritual practices have so much in common, but there always seems to be an argument with that remaining five to 10% that, that they disagree on. And, and that seems to be what's causing the, I guess, the disruption between religions. Yeah. Well, there's, there's lumpers and splitters, I think. <laughs> there's some people who tend to see similarities and some people who tend to see differences. I think, um, you know, scholarship can help us to be informed on that question where, where we can see some similarities that that sometimes exist, but we can also respect real differences. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, if there's people who always always lump or people who always split, I feel like the scholarship can help um, have br bring in a more moderate perspective where you see the similarities as well as the differences. Yeah, certainly. Now let, let's talk about some other spiritual practices that, that can invoke such experiences. When we talk about meditation, what is the common theme or, or what comes to mind when you think of meditation? There seems to be a lot of different practices that invoke different altered states. Let's talk about meditation and, and across the board, what, what types of meditation are there and, and how can that invoke such experiences? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's good to, I like the premise of your question, which is that there are different types of meditation. There does appear to be some kind of similarity, some kind of um, setting aside intentional time for deliberate practice, but the content of a meditative practice is often quite different across um, ac across traditions. So last year I edited a book called um, 
rituals and practices in world religions where we where we had a, a scholar from each of I think 17 different traditions uh, major world religions including humanism uh, and and universalism as well as all of the the major monotheistic and, and other religions describe some of their practices and rituals um, you know it's mindfulness is extremely popular uh, but that comes from a, a specific mostly Buddhist background and so I think it's interesting that you know there are millions or billions of people practicing prayer and meditation already on a daily basis that we haven't studied very, at all uh, and so that also leaves the question of how many um, of these people who are engaging in these practices are regularly having the kinds of experiences that are of interest and also uh, what kinds of meditation might be most useful in the context of say integration of a of a psychedelic experience so you, so to pick up on that thread you, you mentioned that integration uh, is an important part of psychedelic treatment and i absolutely agree with that and there's a lot of good research that needs to be done on the frequency uh, and the duration of integration and the, and the kind of uh, psychotherapeutic paradigm that works best in that context. I'm particularly interested in this uh, cognitive approach, as, as I mentioned, but meditation seems like it has an important uh, role to play there. And I, I should mention there's, there's a really interesting study uh, that my uh, advisor and colleague uh, Roland Griffiths did, where he uh, paired psilocybin sessions uh, in one condition, and then in another condition gave psilocybin as usual. And he found that the, the group who had received the additional uh, spiritual practices, which mostly involves meditation and journaling, did indeed do a bit better than the other condition. Uh, and so I, I'd, I'd point you to that paper. It's it's a really interesting one and, and one that I don't hear all that much discussion about, um, but it's it, it does point to the importance of integration and a potential synergistic effect with meditation. And many people note that after a psychedelic experience that their, their meditation is either kind of reawoken or awakened for the first time. So I do see that there's an awesome degree of promise in regards to psychedelics and I guess, promoting meditation and ensuring that the long-term change of, of not necessarily loss of self entirely, but certainly having access to these kinds of states of consciousness. And we were talking about religion before, and, and I know a lot of religions have, have a similar idea in terms of non-dual consciousness. And again, that, that'll tie back into the sense of self and, and a loss of self and being connected and the idea of consciousness and and everything surrounding it is like you know i think of it as though you're aware of the body just as much as you're aware of that which is beyond the body and there there's only really one place for things to appear which is in consciousness so the idea of non-dual consciousness and, and meditative practices and other contemplative practices do have that similarity in in common psychedelic state or, or experience is in some ways uh, a shortcut to the meditative state. And of course, that doesn't automatically imply long-term change, but certainly interesting to, to discuss how such experiences can encourage these kind of practices. Yeah, well, I want to pick up on a, a thread uh, having to do with this idea of, of self-loss uh, that, that you've mentioned a few times and that I, I hear... Um, a lot of discussion about, I think the, the term ego dissolution in particular has, has caught on as a, a, a characterization of not only the subjective effects of psychedelics in general, but maybe their therapeutic mechanism. And I have to say, I, I disagree with that characterization. Um, I've done a bit of work on this, and this is something that I'm actively working on at the moment. I think that there's good reason to think that feelings of connection are actually more important than feelings of self-loss in, in term, I think they both occur, but if you care about outcomes like uh, reducing stress, say, or increasing well-being, uh, or, or increasing um, 
positive emotions and decreasing negative emotions, it would be much more productive to think in terms of feelings of connectedness. And those feelings of connectedness can be targeted towards different things. Sometimes it's just everything at once, um, you know, but, but it can be uh, the world, uh, it can be people, you know, or, who happen to be around that individual uh, during, during that state. Uh, but I think most often it has to do with loved ones uh, and, and recognizing the connections that are already there. And so I think one, one, you know, psychedelic experiences are quote unquote far out. <laughs> you know, that's the, used to be the cliche way of, of talking about them. But I think their therapeutic mechanisms are actually much closer to home and probably have to do with feelings of connection uh, to loved ones. Yeah, no, I certainly, certainly agree there. And I think even the, the word self and the word ego can often be distorted in how we perceive the, the words themselves. And I think there's the essential self, which is the awareness or, or the consciousness, but then there's also the self at the level of the body and, and identifying purely with, with the body that you're in can sometimes be damaging in, in the sense of the fear of death. And it's really interesting to see how people can often lose this fear of death through such experiences. So in that sense of, of loss of self, of being so much more than just the body and the mind that you currently are in is obviously connected with that feeling of deeper connection to, to everyone and everything and, and feeling that connection in that way. Now, I'm very interested in your descriptions of time and space. I don't even know how to how to begin asking this question, but let's let's get a little bit more philosophical and, and talk about time and space. I don't, I don't know what question to ask, but let's talk about time and space. Yeah, well, let's yeah. So sense of so here's something interesting that I don't think that there's been enough work on in this area, which is that your sense of time and space tracks with your sense of self. So there's this construct called psychological distance. And basically there's a particular region of the brain that appears to keep track of uh, temporal distance, which is how, how long something lasts, spatial distance, which is the obvious one, um, you know, the, the actual uh, physical distance of something. And then third, social distance, how, um, you know, a loved one is close by and a stranger is far away. It's actually, it's more of a metaphorical kind of distance, but nonetheless, these three things seem to track together. And at one particular part of the brain appears to keep track of all of these three things. Um, and so I find it fascinating that during say a psychedelic, uh, experience, you have people saying things like uh, time went away. I felt connected to everything at once and my sense of space or my sense of self went away. Uh, so you have all of these three, three things happening at once. They seem to track with one another. There are other ways in which you can measure them tracking with one another. But um, we see this in the self-report. Uh, we see this indirectly in other kinds of neuroimaging studies. Uh, but we also see this in, uh, you know, the kinds of writings that William James uh, included in the varieties of religious experience. We see Bertrand Russell has written an essay on mystical experience. Um, he has a, a great essay called Mysticism and Logic, where he talks about this kind of spacelessness and timelessness and selflessness. Uh, so there appear to be very consistent observations about this uh, across several levels of analysis, but uh, I don't think that those things have been linked up quite yet. Um, but isn't it just interesting that an experience uh, can modulate these very basic, call them faculties of consciousness? Uh, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. It's everything that we uh, fundamentally exist in, that we exist in what seems to be time, space, and, and a self that's moving through through time and space. And it does beg the question, is, is there more to life or is there more to existence beyond this experience now? And, you know, I don't think we can ever understand it at the level of, of a human or understanding it conceptually. I think the idea of 
being a multi-dimensional being is certainly there and we can speculate, but it, it's certainly hard to, to prove anything or, or to collate any evidence when we exist in, in these dimensions. So it's certainly an interesting space and, and I'm interested to see where, where that goes. And it's certainly fascinating. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there does appear to be in this process of integrating the experience, uh, these kinds of issues do uh, come up where, where people wonder about their, their worldview, for example. But it, it, it raises the question of whether um, there, these experiences provide any kind of insight beyond uh, perhaps insights into how our mind works um, or, or how our mind can be changed. I mean, at, at some basic level, I think the inference, our mind can can change, can experience things that we, most of us couldn't imagine it could experience or feel like, um, you know, that's, I think that's pretty straightforward. But as soon as you make any kind of other inference on the basis of the, the subjective effects of the experience, um, I don't think you're on very solid ground. Uh, so it could be that that actually there's nothing about the experience that will teach us how the mind works uh, or, or how reality works. You know, it, it, could, it could be that, that that's the case. It's uh, people will differ and, and disagree about that. Uh, and then we're squarely in the domain of, of philosophy and theology, which is, which is not my professional expertise. So I, I typically stick to the kinds of questions that I can address scientifically. Uh, but these questions are part of what make this area so fascinating. Again, like we often talk about what we do know about such experiences and what we understand in terms of science and translating that to, to the general public and translating that to, to psychiatrists and helping them understand what, what's happening during such experiences or what you can do with, with understanding mechanisms and to, to push that forward into integration and, and, Getting people better really is is the big picture at the moment with with mental health being such a, a widespread problem. So, yeah, these these questions are certainly going to arise, and people in this space will always question and will always speculate, and it's an exciting discussion. But again, it is philosophy, and it is just an idea to 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 go into that space. Now, before we close this one out, is there anything else that you would like to add? Is there any research that you've been working on or really fascinated by? I'd like to just mention, I have an article in JAMA uh, called uh, Psychedelics and Psychiatry, Keeping the Renaissance from Going Off the Rails. And I have to say, I'm kept up at night by worries uh, about this research not be kept to a, a very high standard of rigor and for the clinical applications uh, to not be done in a very cautious manner. And so I, I think uh, this, the, the psychedelic so-called renaissance, you know, has been going on for about 20 years now, and it's actually coming into maturity. Uh, and so I think we now have a solid evidence base uh, to look at. And what that should do is that evidence base should, should show skeptics uh, that, that they were wrong, that there really is some, uh, some important and genuine therapeutic potential uh, for, say, psilocybin. Um, but it should also temper, I think, some of the claims of enthusiasts. Uh, you know, these, th this isn't a panacea. This isn't a cure-all. Um, you know, that we have effect sizes now, we can look at how long these effects last. And I think there's a great deal of potential, uh, but it's important not to, to overclaim uh, based on the evidence. Uh, and then I think, you know, some of the questions that you've raised were, were really great, you know, that we're, we need to study um, more of the mechanisms than more of the neurobiological mechanisms, the cognitive mechanisms, and then clinical questions, uh, like what's the most appropriate kind of psychotherapy to apply? Uh, I think that there's a lot of promise in the cognitive approach. And then looking at integration, you know, what is the ideal 
um, frequency and duration of integration and what should that involve? Uh, should, should say mindfulness be involved, for example? Um, can we leverage smartphone technology and have some app support? Um, you know, I think that there's a huge number of open questions and really exciting questions to look at. And I think the potential uh, or psilocybin, that's something that uh, a tool that, that our mental health workers surely uh, need because there's a great need at the moment. Very well said. And we are maturing in the, in the psychedelic research and there's a lot of fine tuning being done and, and figuring out, well, what is the best context for treating each mental illness? But again, like a lot of uh, mental illness, I guess, well, how Western medicine is treating a lot of illnesses is, is very much like a scalpel of this is depression and this is anxiety and this is this type of illness. But I feel like there are a lot of similarities in terms of that this, the self-narrative that, that we're telling ourselves and and how a big disruption in our normal waking state, and I say disruption in, in, a, in an encouraging way, not a, not a discouraging way, but how, how such experiences can kind of reset ourselves and move forward in, in a positive way and using tools that, that we've had for, for many, many years, including positive psychology and cognitive tools that, that we have used that can help mold this forward. But yeah, I think you're 100% right. Many people are getting too ahead of themselves and, you know, looking at each mechanism on its own and saying, okay, well, psychedelics are growing the brain because they increase neuroplasticity and then people will use microdosing it and tell everyone else that, you know, I'm doing this to grow my brain. But I think whilst we can appreciate the research that has been done, that there's still a lot of work to do. I love the humility. You know, there's, there's no single person can be an expert on all of the levels of analysis involved with uh, psychedelic research. And so it's, it's a tremendous opportunity for interdisciplinary collaboration and, and for scientists and clinicians working together. It's, it's really exciting and yet it's uh, an ongoing process of trying to understand uh, why and how uh, these substances seem to have such positive effects under some conditions. Yeah, and certainly interdisciplinary that is definitely needed because this field of research, psychedelics, you've got philanthropists, anthropologists, psychiatrists, scientists, all working on very similar things. And it's awesome to see that you've got so many different professions and levels of understanding working together to try and make a, a cohesive product to, to bring to the general public and to bring to psychiatry and, and even further down the track, if it, if it is recognized as, as medicine um, across the world, then I'm sure it'll raise some eyebrows in terms of what other contexts can, can it be helpful with spiritual healing or, or whatever that might be. But David, thank you so much for your time. You're certainly a wealth of knowledge. Sure. And podcasters as well. You know, science communicators are an important part of this process. Exactly. I uh, really appreciate you coming on and it's it's been an honor talking to you and I appreciate all the work that, that you're doing and, and I look forward to, to touching base with you in the future and to see where research has, has taken you and I'll uh, certainly check out those books. But thank you so much for your time. If people are wanting to connect with you, um, where can you direct them? Yeah, they can look at our lab's website, um, the Center for psychedelic and consciousness research at Johns Hopkins. You can just Google my name. I'm on Twitter at ExistWell. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you uh, for the great conversation and the questions. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and your interest and enthusiasm in mental health and psychedelic therapy. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did because you've made it to the end, share it with a friend share it on social media but the best thing that you can do is leave a review on whichever podcast platform you're on well actually the best thing you do is do all of that but this will help expose this information to the people who are looking for it want to learn more about psychedelic assisted therapies check out our website at mindmedicineaustralia.org next episode i sit down with Lars wield hope i pronounced that right he is one of the founders of Compass Pathways, which is a company that is at the forefront of psilocybin-assisted therapy. 
and have numerous clinical trials throughout Europe and across the world. And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment.